Hello, everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we're focusing on a topic that influences every facet of reproductive health, that is the microbiome. Joining me to talk about the interplay between the microbiome, pregnancy loss, and genetic predisposition is fellow naturopathic doctor, Robin Murphy. Dr. Murphy is a fertility naturopathic doctor at Conceive Health in Toronto and scientific advisor for DNA Labs and Fern DNA. Dr. Murphy combines her strong background in research and clinical practice to bring the most effective treatment strategies for her patients. She uses a comprehensive approach to addressing underlying causes that impact fertility, hormones, the immune system, digestive factors, and metabolic imbalances. She's most excited about supporting patients on a larger scale with her latest developments, including her virtual program, Fertility Essentials, and her collaboration with Fern DNA. She's also thrilled to be an ambassador for Fertility Matters Canada, which provides resources for those navigating the fertility journey. I've really been looking forward to this episode. Welcome to the show, Dr. Murphy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be talking about this topic and there's so much to dive into. There's so much to to unpack in the microbiome. And this is a beloved topic for functional and naturopathic doctors everywhere. We're trained that health begins in the gut and that's certainly true for fertility as well. I have listen to other things and read other things that you've posted about the microbiome. So I know that this topic is of special clinical interest to you. And I'm hoping you could give us a primer to set the scene for our episode about what are some of the most important ways that our microbiome, especially in the gut for now, can impact our fertility? Yeah, I think generally what people um, need to understand is the gut microbiome, it's almost like its own organ. The more (laughs) information that we learn about it, it's just incredible what it, the impact that it has on the rest of the body. So we know that the microbiome, uh, the gut microbiome in particular can inform our immune system, it can alter inflammation, it can alter our metabolism, blood sugar, regulation, um, nutrient absorption, can even impact our hormones. So if we think about these processes as a whole and how they relate to fertility, that's where we can start to understand some of the impact that it can have. I think you're highlighting something really, really important that the microbiome in the gut has this effect on so many other body systems. I mean, you just mentioned hormones. And if we take the inflammation route, that could take us into our immune system and our cardiovascular system. And all of that is relevant for fertility, but also for prevention of chronic disease later in life. This is super important. And I love that you mentioned the inflammation piece. And I won't take us down the inflammation path at this point, but we talk about inflammation in in relation to fertility all the time. And sometimes when I see, for example, that a patient has elevated inflammatory markers like an HSCRP on their blood work, and then we want to go digging for the cause, I'm looking in the gut first. A hundred percent. You know, I talk to patients about that all the time. What is the trigger of inflammation? And sometimes it's external and sometimes it's internal processes. And I think understanding the microbiome and how it informs the immune system, we have to start with the gut and understanding its impact on inflammation kind of as 
uh, I would say a first step. Definitely a first step. When we talk about the microbiome, which the microbiome, it's such a hot term in medicine. I think even in pop culture right now, we tend to think about just that microbial composition in the gut. But we know that for for fertility, it's really important to think about the microbiome in the vagina and the endometrium, really that whole reproductive tract. Will you talk to us a little bit about how the microbiome in that entire system can influence our ability to both conceive and to maintain a pregnancy? Yeah, this I would say is definitely a new branch of research and medicine. We used to think that the upper uh, reproductive tract was pretty much sterile. We didn't think that there was any bacteria in the fallopian tubes around the ovary and the uterus. But newer research is looking at how the composition of the uterine microbiome, particularly a certain uh, genre of bacteria called lactobacillus, and how the presence and concentration of this lactobacillus or the presence of these opportunistic or pathogenic bacteria can impact implantation, can impact uh, recurrent pregnancy loss. Um, I think we're just starting to understand this, but we're starting to see trends where there's types of testing that can be done actually doing a biopsy of the endometrial lining and looking at lactobacillus content. And we're seeing trends that exactly this, when there's lower levels of lactobacillus, it seems to impact the ability either to implant or maintain pregnancy. And so it's interesting when you think about that process and what's going on, I think there is a symbiotic relationship where, you know, when we think of implantation and the window of implantation, that period is when the immune system is sort of really active and it's allowing the implantation of the embryo but it's also increasing the permeability of the epithelial within the endometrium itself. So that's an opportunity for bacteria to also get into that area. And it seems that the bacteria can influence things like the pH and it can influence the production of reactive oxygen species. So there's a certain degree that we want that to happen, right? We want there to be an increased permeability and increase in the immune system, increase in reactive oxygen species to sort of allow the embryo to adhere and then start to integrate into the um, endometrium to create that sort of nice bubble and, you know, do the processes and start the production of the placenta but uh, it's a finite balance. So I think what we're starting to see is if there is a disruption with the types of microbes and then the types of metabolites and the downstream effects of that, that that can likely have an impact. Isn't it so amazing that it wasn't very long ago we thought even the endometrium was somewhat sterile? And when I really think about this, I'm like, oh, there's no doorway that's blocking the entrance of bacteria. So, of course, there's going to be some right. migration when we know that there's bacteria in the vaginal canal, for example. Yeah, exactly. And we even think that there is some transmission through seminal fluid and sperm as well. And it seems that, you know, microbes are involved at every sort of step in fertility. We see follicular and oocyte maturation. We see ovulation, impact in implantation, pregnancy health, um, 
it seems to be implemented in all areas. Yeah, I love how you described it as a symbiotic relationship because obviously we are interfacing with these microbi- these microbes, I mean, all over our body. In terms of, I just know that anyone who's listening is thinking, okay, I'm trying to get pregnant. I want this, this pregnancy to be successful. What's going on in my own microbiome? Are there some uh, suggestions that you have for our listeners about how they might be able to make some educated guesses about whether or not their own microbiome is contributing, especially if they're having fertility struggles? Is their microbiome contributing to that? How do we know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And, you know, I would first recommend people to kind of look at their own health. Like, are they having symptoms? And some of the most common symptoms of dysbiosis would be looking at recurrent infections. So are there recurrent yeast infections, urinary tract infections, bacterial vaginosis? Are there certain conditions that we know are associated with more of a dysbiotic um, environment? So pelvic inflammatory disease, even endometriosis and PCOS uh, seem to be linked to dysbiosis as well. Um, there's also things from a digestive standpoint to look out for. So if you're having chronic bloating or gas, um, irregular frequency of bowel movements, you're getting sick all the time, increase in food sensitivities. I think these are pretty common um, symptoms that people should be aware of to just sort of give them a clue that there's dysbiosis, that it could be having an impact Um, I think it's important to also think about um, some of the other conditions like diabetes, um, insulin resistance, SIBO is a one that I see all the time, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, obesity, all of these will have impacts as well on the microbiome and maybe having an impact either directly on the microbiome and fertility or directly having an impact on fertility itself. Absolutely. Will you take us one step backwards just for a moment and talk about this term dysbiosis? If anybody isn't familiar with what that means, will you just give us the overview of what dysbiosis hmm. is? Yeah. So first of all, I think it's it's good to know what the microbiome is. So the microbiome is a collection of bacteria, and these bacteria are made up of different classes of bacteria, and there's literally thousands of them. Um, And we're just sort of learning more and more about what is considered normal within that makeup of our microbiome. And so when we talk about dysbiosis, we're talking about an imbalance between these normal microbes and what's called opportunistic microbes or even pathogens. So it's helping us to understand, you know, how is this imbalance maybe potentially impacting our health? Um, And if we talk about a dysbiotic environment, it's more speaking to usually lower levels of these beneficial bacteria and higher levels of either pathogens or opportunistic infections. Yes, thank you for that. Just in case anybody's like, oh, what is it supposed to look like? And what does that mean if it's a dysbiosis? And it's so fascinating. I know you and I probably both have a great love for reading about the way that 
our beneficial bacteria, like you mentioned, help us to absorb our nutrients, help us to metabolize hormones, all of these things that maybe aren't intuitively, I mean, with the hormone example, maybe that's not so intuitive to us that that process is happening in our gut. But once we start looking at these constellations of bacteria that have these functions, like we've been talking about that roll out into other body systems, it makes it so clear why we might want to start there in the beginning of our clinical process with anybody, but especially when patients are struggling with fertility. And I don't, I, I'll let you speak to this, but I find that in my patients that are clearly experiencing subfertility, there's almost always something going on in the gut. A huge percentage, I would say. Yeah. You know, one thing about functional medicine, which I really love is looking at the root cause. And one of the best sort of analogies of this is if you step on attack and you have pain, you don't just keep taking Advil to reduce the pain, you want to remove the attack. So when we're looking at fertility, subfertility cases, um, even just preconception care and sort of maximizing someone's potential for conception and a, a healthy pregnancy, we want to look at some of those root causes. And when we start to understand the microbiome, and understand all of its implications, especially when we're seeing higher inflammation, we're seeing maybe irregular periods or heavy bleeding, we're seeing um, digestive symptoms, we're seeing conditions related to hormone dysregulation, we really have to start at the gut, we have to look at the microbiome. Um, and I don't think it's really well known enough, you know, in, in standard practice or conventional care. Um, but we're starting to sort of get the picture and we're starting to come up with different tre treatment strategies um, and ways to address this uh, as a whole. And I would say from a holistic standpoint, it's not just about giving antibiotics and probiotics. You want to be very specific about which type of strains and probiotics you're using um, and all the dietary and lifestyle factors that we know can impact you know, the composition of the microbiome, we want that to be individualized for the patient. Mm -hmm. That's the perfect lead into my next question, because I'm hoping we can talk about some of the most important factors that influence that microbial composition in the gut. You mentioned there's some diet pieces, there's some lifestyle factors. What are you thinking about in terms of those most important influences? Yeah, so I think it's important to understand sort of what establishes our microbiome. So it's actually established at birth. So if there's a vaginal uh, birth versus a C-section, there's going to be different types of microbiomes, different types of bacteria that's found in the neonatal gut, um, whether we're breastfed or formula fed. And then during childhood, are there any recurrent infections and how often were you exposed to antibiotics? this can definitely impact sort of the constitution of the microbiome. And then I always tell patients, you know, that kind of sets the stage, same with our genetics, but the digestive system, the, the gut microbiome is very dynamic. So it can be affected by the local environment, what's the availability of nutrients, the acidity and pH levels, oxygen availability, um, but also the macro environment. So what's your diet? And I call this more macro, but what's your diet? It, what is it made up of? Um, we know that we're of a Mediterranean whole foods type of diet, rich in prebiotics and probiotics is going to be more beneficial than having a standard American diet or what we call sad diet. <laughs> 
And I always tell patients, you know, it, what are you, what you're eating is also information. So what information are you giving your body and subsequent uh, microbiome? So we can look at um, dietary factors. We look at lifestyle factors as well. So we know stress, smoking, um, even sleep habits can have a big impact. Um, even your hygiene, uh, sexual practices, um, these can have an impact as well as uh, things like antibiotics or other medications. I um, am inspired and it, uh, optimistic by this dynamic nature of the microbiome because we know that when we start increasing even just fiber-rich foods, polyphenol-rich foods, that our microbiome can improve fairly quickly, I mean, relative to some of the other body processes that we try to adjust. And so um, it makes, it, it gives us purpose in our dietary change. We know that the microbiome can shift, and I think that is super helpful. One of the most common questions I receive in my inbox is, how can I support my egg quality? Whether you're thinking about fertility in the future, you're trying to conceive for the first time, or you're preparing for IVF or egg freezing, caring for the health of our eggs is one of the most important ways we can support our fertility. To optimize my own egg health, I've turned to my partners at Needed. Their egg quality support supplement combines four targeted and optimally dosed antioxidants to improve egg quality, including CoQ10, which I'm always talking about as a powerful antioxidant and mitochondrial support. Remember that an egg cell or an oocyte takes three to four months to mature before ovulation. And this is a powerful time to support egg health through targeted nutritional support. Needed egg support is safe for pregnancy and breastfeeding, contains therapeutic levels of targeted antioxidants, and was curated by a team of fertility-focused practitioners and researchers. If you're thinking about getting pregnant in the next year, I highly recommend adding needed egg support to your supplement routine. Head over to thisisneeded.com and use code FUNCTIONALFERTILITY for 20% off your first month of needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use code FUNCTIONALFERTILITY for 20% off your first month of needed products. So let's say you are working with a patient, you, you suspect that there's something going on in their digestive system. Are you doing testing? Are you doing a stool analysis? Are you doing some sort of evaluation? Um, or are you more looking at their history and their symptoms to decide how you'd like to treat? So I think it depends. Like I, I see a very interesting group of patients. I, I see one branch of my practice where patients are coming from the fertility clinic and they're working with reproductive endocrinologists. So with some of those doctors, what they're doing is actual microbiome um, testing within the endometrium. And it's very select few of doctors who are doing this, but often I'll get referrals because there's been an abnormal test that came back. So they're showing, you know, lower levels of lactobacillus or they're showing pathogens or often what I'll see are things like Gardnerella being high, which is associated with bacterial vaginosis. The other side of my practice um, is sort of standard patients coming in looking for fertility support, hormonal support. And I used to work in another clinic where I focused solely on kind of digestive um, health. So through that time, I, I did do a lot of testing um, at that time at the other clinic. And then, you know, fast forward five years ahead, now I'm working 
um, in a fertility clinic, I found that the testing, there's a few occasions where it will help me to discern whether or not I'm doing one treatment over another or how long the treatment should be um, for, let's say, herbal antibiotics <clears throat> or antimicrobials. So in the case of SIBO, often um, I'll be very, it'll be very clear to me that there's probably some type of SIBO going on. So in that case, I'll usually do a trial low FODMAP and see how they respond. If they respond after two weeks and the bloating and the gas go down, I'm pretty clear that there's probably SIBO that's present and they're going to benefit from doing some type of antimicrobial um, to treat that. It also depends where they're at in their fertility journey. If they're doing, you know, an IVF next month, I'm probably not doing herbal antibiotics at that stage. Um, I have other patients where, you know, sometimes it's helpful for them to have that objective data as well, where we'll look at SIBO testing just to see where the gas levels are, see how long we're expecting to do treatment. And then sometimes if there's a history of travelers, you know, travelers diarrhea or gastroenteritis or other types of infections, or it's more of a complex case, then I'll suggest doing stool analysis. And the stool analysis, I'm looking for, are there infections present? So this could be parasitic or bacterial or, um, I mean, all different types of <laughs> viral, even they have some uh, studies or some types of tests that we can look at as well. But I'm looking for those types of infections, uh, signs of chronic inflammation, uh, pancreatic function, is there um, IBD or autoimmune uh, presence that's also affecting the gut. So I think initially, a lot of times I can look at a, a case and look at symptoms and, um, you know, sort of treat and um, treat accordingly and, and assume that there is dysbiosis and, you know, we address it in that way. And then sometimes I think testing can be really helpful, um, again, to identify kind of underlying pathogens that we wouldn't know otherwise, or to give some objective data for patients to sort of understand the why and also see those metrics and um, follow up to see how those metrics are responding to treatment. Right. It's so fascinating to me that you have access to some of these endometrial biopsies because that's not super common where I am in just kind of the the primary care setting of fertility support. And so the fact that you have some of that information is so fascinating to me. And this question has come up um, when I've done Q&As and I'm interested to pass it your way of, let's say that we have something like um, uh, chronic endo metritis. So not endometriosis, but endometritis. Uh, people always ask me like, am I going to take something orally and that's going to treat my endometrium? Like, how is it going to get in there? So when you're noticing that there's, let's say some kind of infectious agent in the endometrium, what types of treatments are you employing? Hmm. Yeah. Um, the course for that is antibiotics and it's oral antibiotics. So they definitely impact the endometrial environment. And when we think about, you know, sort of taking something orally, it gets digested and then taken up into the bloodstream. So wherever the bloodstream goes, there's potential for medication and treatments to go throughout the whole body. So that's sort of the mechanism of it um, to kind of think of how these oral uh, 
whatever the treatment is, but how it how it could affect the endometrium. Um, in my practice, I also use vaginal uh, probiotics and vaginal suppositories to alter the vaginal microbiome, which we know um, supersedes, you know, and influences the uterine microbiome. Yeah, I, I will really want to talk to you about your favorite ways to support this healthy colony of lactobacilli because you've shared how important that is. Um, and th this is another one. I mean, I always tell people, I have many patients on an oral probiotic and they're like, how is that going to help the lactobacilli in my reproductive tract? But we see in the research that when we add an oral probiotic, we do see a benefit in the vagina, at least in the studies that I've seen. So you're doing some um, maybe oral probiotics, there's some vaginal applications. What are your other tried and true strategies for supporting those lactobacilli? So I mentioned um, some of the health lifestyle uh, tendencies that people can do. So just making sure a rich diet, um, ample hydration, limited caffeine and alcohol, limited refined and processed foods, um, avoiding certain things like smoking, we're working on body mass, you know, physical exercise, all of these are sort of the baseline. And then when you're looking at lactobacilli, specifically, you want to look at foods that are lactobacillus fermented. So that can be a really good way of getting some natural probiotics. You know, when we supplement probiotics, it's, we're talking about mil millions and maybe billions of sort of, uh, cultures and bacteria that we're looking to deliver. When you look at something like sauerkraut juice, it's trillions in a quarter of a teaspoon that you can get in these natural probiotics. So as long as someone is tolerant to fermentable foods, and sometimes people aren't if they have yeast or if they have histamine intolerance, but Lactobacillus fermented foods can be a good way. Um, prebiotics, so these are types of resistant starch and fibers. Um, and then I mentioned clinically, so using particular probiotics um, in oral as well as vaginary, vaginal suppositories. So you talk specifically about, you know, taking oral probiotics. We know from the research, um, and this is a really good reference for people listening, is if you go to probioticchart.ca, they actually break down the different strains of bacteria and what the research shows that it's been beneficial towards. So we'll see different lactobacillus as having protective um, impact on endometrial tissue. It can help with recurrent infections like UTI or BV. It can also break down biofilms, which is something that comes up if someone has recurrent infections. The bacteria themselves create, create almost like a protective dome. And so it makes it hard for the immune cells as well as, you know, antibiotics or herbal antimicrobials to penetrate. And so these biofilms need to be um, addressed. And so we find that certain probiotics can do that as well. Um, and there's some interesting research on uh, a certain strain called Lactobacillus uh, crispatus. So they noted that higher rates of success in women you, who were undergoing IUI, so intrauterine insemination, they had higher rates of success when they were given the Lactobacillus uh, crispatus strain. So we are starting to see some of these studies that taking oral probiotics can actually have an impact on different ART um, 
techniques as well as you know pregnancy rates mm-hmm. just because probiotics they're pretty easily accessible we see all of these fertility benefits and when you look at the the risk benefit ratio i feel like the benefits are clearly uh, uh, winning I really feel like this is an area where we should explore and people should be offered a probiotic. So thank you for sharing that resource so we can all go and check our strains. I was going to ask you if there's some strains we should focus on. So that's really helpful. You talked about the way that it can help to support fertility treatment, but I'm hoping we can take a look and explore um, pregnancy loss because there's some emerging research that I've been trying to keep my eye on showing how our our microbial composition can affect our ability to maintain a pregnancy as well. Will you talk to us a little bit about that connection? Sure, no problem. So you're right, this is newer types of studies that have come out. And so we're starting to see correlation um, and correlation is very different than than causation and having that clear cut, you know, understanding that if you give a treatment, this is gonna impact the outcome. Um, but I think it's important to note that we are seeing certain trends where when there's higher amounts of lactobacillus within the endometrium, we do see better reproductive outcome. And when they isolate different types of opportunistic bacteria or gram-negative bacteria, it, it is correlated with lower implantation rates, a decrease of at-term pregnancies and increase in number of miscarriage. And what's interesting, there's some data looking at um, bacterial vaginosis and IVF outcomes. And so women who had bacterial vaginosis, it was associated with a twofold increase in risk for preclinical pregnancy loss. So that's considered a chemical pregnancy. But how often do we see that? Where essentially women, especially those who are tracking their cycle very regularly, and maybe they notice their basal body temperature go up and it sustains during that luteal phase. And maybe their period is late by a few days and then all of a sudden their period comes. Maybe they did a pregnancy test, maybe they didn't. Maybe they saw a faint faint line, you know, um, showing that there was a pregnancy. If that was lost prior to doing uh, ultrasound, then that's considered, uh, you know, preclinical or chemical pregnancy. So we do see those quite often. And the thought is that these probably are genetic errors that happen, some type of chromosomal error within the embryo that wasn't, you know, um, able, so it didn't make it able to survive, but um, perhaps it also has to do with the microbiome. And if there's infections, you know, what's the environment that that is creating and how is that impacting implantation and ability for that embryo to survive? Mm -hmm. You've mentioned a few different infectious scenarios. So bacterial vaginosis, chronic yeast infection, when you're working with patients and you're kind of building a timeline for when they might try to conceive and you know that that's part of their history and maybe they're symptomatic now and you're treating, or maybe you just know that that's kind of part of their story, but they're not symptomatic right now. What advice do you give about the timeline of, you know, we should treat this and then is there a waiting period before they should try to conceive? How do you navigate that mm-hmm. timeline? 
when I'm looking at treatment timelines with patients, I'm looking to see what is the level of infection, what is what else is going on in their body, and you know what's their level of health and other places that could be impacting fertility. If I see a patient where there's dysbiosis um, and a suspected infection, then often working with the uh, fertility doctor, they'll give antibiotics and I'll give probiotics. We can do uh, a five to 10 day course of antibiotics and a 30 day course of probiotics. And usually that will normalize the microbiome. So I'm actually impressed in that sense that it's that quick to recover. Now I do get some patients where we don't see it recover as quickly. And so I might recommend doing, you know, uh, a two to three month course of probiotics um, and, and holistic microbiome support, as well as the other, you know, lifestyle factors, dietary factors that we would typically do for fertility. So that really that three month preconception window um, I may recommend. And then it's generally recommended, and this is through the company called iGenomics, but it's generally recommended that you don't want to be giving um, antibiotics seven days prior to implantation. So that's because you want to make sure that the microbiome is stabilized prior to implantation. And so I extrapolate from that and I say, okay, I, I apply that to our you know, herbal antimicrobials as well. I don't want to be doing anything that's going to disrupt the microbiome within that seven day window as well. And I think oral probiotics are okay. And I'm kind of playing around with vaginal probiotics and during that window of whether or not uh, that's safe as well. I think that's really helpful. And this is, I, I make this case probably during every podcast episode we've ever recorded, but this is me again, making a case to start your preconception planning as early as possible. I mean, as soon as you know that in the near-ish future, you'd like to get pregnant, let's start working on your foundations of health because it gives us time to discover these details, to treat these details, to find homeostasis in your body systems. So this is just my call to action. If you think you want to get pregnant in the next year or so, find your functional naturopathic fertility specialist so we can help. Agreed, 100%. <laughs> and these things take time too, right? You know, exactly. we're asking people to change lifestyle habits and work on stress and sleep management and you know, it takes time to do that. We can't just get a prescription and then the next day everything is lined up all perfectly. It's just not how humans work, right? Exactly. So I, I always tell patients, you know, to give that window of implementation because I'm not expecting it, you know, everything to change all at once. Yes. We need time for these treatment plans to have their effect. And on the on the flip side of it, we're also learning how the microbiome can contribute to the occurrence and development of some conditions that impact fertility, PCOS being one that more and more research is emerging, linking the microbiome and PCOS. So will you tell us a little bit about what you've read in the research and what that connection looks like? Because this is something that I am uh, really keeping my eye on. And I expect that more and more data is going to come out in the next five to 10 years showing us this connection. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, like you said, it's definitely new uh, when it comes to our understanding of how dysbiosis and PCOS are interrelated. Um, we do see some studies looking at how different genres of bacteria in the gut, when they're decreased, they are associated with higher circulating testosterone. We know testosterone, you know, is can be a, a key factor in PCOS. We can also see that the these correlations with this type of bacteria can impair glucose metabolism. So again, one of the key, you know, foundations in PCOS. So to kind of understand this relationship, the bacteria in our gut, when they carry out their metabolism, they produce different compounds or what we call metabolites. And these metabolites, they can get absorbed in through the uh, enterohepatic uh, circulation. And this can incite inflammation and lead to altered inflammatory pathways. We see that it can actually go and alter beta cell proliferation and function within the pancreas itself. So that is what partly leads to abnormal or excessive um, insulin secretion or, or insulin resistance and can lead to excessive fat accumulation as well. So when we're looking at PCOS, depending on how it's presenting, obesity can be, you know, a large factor, um, insulin resistance, uh, high insulin, high testosterone. So we're starting to understand some of these connections. And then there's another factor called the estrabolone. So this is essentially talking about the bacteria in our gut that secrete different enzymes, which can influence our estrogen levels. So normally the body will, what's called conjugate estrogen. So it will bind it and this deactivates it, which is really important because estrogen is anabolic. It causes cell growth and proliferation. And we want to make sure that we're controlling that. So the liver will add on these little um, conjugates is what they're called, they're proteins, and then it'll excrete it into the gut. And we want to make sure that that sort of lock and key is, is stayed together. What can happen with different types of bacteria, they can have, they can produce these enzymes called beta glucuronidase. And these enzymes actually break apart this sort of lock and key. So what it does, it's, it's allowing that estrogen to now circulate back into systemic circulation. So now we're increasing the levels of estrogen and this can have an impact on hormones. We can see with PCOS <clears throat> different um, sort of hyperestrogenic sort of symptoms uh, that can go along with that. Partly it can be because of weight gain, but also because of the connection with the bacteria. Um, and we can also see it with other types of um, chronic conditions like endometriosis, where any sort of condition where we're seeing high estrogen uh, impacting, it doesn't even have to be high, but estrogen impacting the disease progression, the gut microbiome can play a role in this. And we're even looking at research related to things like cancer, um, estrogen dominant cancers and the gut microbiome. Wow. Yes. This is relevant for PCOS, endometriosis, fibroids, so many types of hormonally reactive conditions that I can think of. And the other piece that 
um, is coming up for me as I'm listening is we have all of this estrogen available because there's this recirculation. And then we have the aromatase enzyme, right? Which can irreversibly um, convert all uh, testosterone to estrogen. So now it's like uh, all of this estrogen available to bind to receptors and cause all of these issues. Um, you mentioned you mentioned endometriosis. So I wanted to take a minute there because this is something that we hear about from our patients who um, have endometriosis, they often have gut symptoms as well. And it's probably because there's, you know, just physically our our gut and our reproductive organs are located fairly close, but there's probably some other things going on. And there's this new research that's suggesting what they call a urogenital gastrointestinal crosstalk that might contribute to endometriosis symptoms. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. I, I just uh, have dove into this sort of topic and geeked out around this um, over the last little bit. And I have to say, I didn't appreciate the complexity behind (laughs) endometriosis and the pathologies around it. But then now what we're seeing, the sort of crosstalk and the bi-directional relationship that it has with the microbiome. And the microbiome related to the gut in relationship to endometriosis, as I mentioned, can impact the estrabolome. So that's affecting estrogen availability and estrogen is driving those, um, the endometriosis. So once the lesions have deposited within the peritoneal cavity, it's estrogen that they're responding to, right? And these lesions inherently there's immune dysfunction. And so these lesions are producing higher amounts of inflammatory cytokines. So these inflammatory cytokines, what's really interesting is they also get taken up back into circulation and then can impact the digestive system. So they can actually impact the hydrochloric acid secretion So it can decrease hydrochloric acid secretion and it can decrease gut motility. So it's very clear that if there's endometriosis that's present, especially for long periods of time, which is a chronic disease. So over time, these symptoms would likely get worse if untreated, that it would then relate to gut dysbiosis. So if we're not producing enough hydrochloric acid, then we're not digesting our foods properly we're not sterilizing our foods properly. So that's just opening up the opportunity for infections and dysbiosis. And I think this is where we're starting to see relationship to things like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth growth, or IBS. Um, if you're not digesting your food and your digestive function is low, then that's going to have a big impact as well. We also know that there are these Um, metabolites that are produced by bacteria, which can affect the brain. And these metabolites can actually go in and bind gonadotropin releasing hormone receptors and lead to an increase in LH and FSH, which then subsequently stimulate further production of estrogen. So in this case, you're getting very high levels of inflammation. You're getting very high levels of estrogen And then you're seeing this constant sort of bi-directional feedback that's perpetuating this relationship even further. So when I'm looking at this with patients, you know, we're definitely bringing down the inflammation, looking at estrogen metabolism, how can we, you know, 
decrease overall estrogen burden, but also increase elimination and then decrease some of these inflammatory markers so that we're not um, perpetuating the pathogenesis of the disease. How fascinating that what is happening in our gut is affecting our hormone levels at, at the level of the brain. That is just right? incredible <laughs> incredible to me that that connection is there and that we can, that someone has researched that. Well, I'll have to do some deep digging on that because that connection is just absolutely awe-inspiring to me. Now, Dr. Murphy, I know that you have um, some expertise in genetics. And so I want to make, I want to make sure that we talk about that and touch on that quickly, because you recently shared on social media, I was watching a video you did talking about how genetics can impact our microbiome. And I'm hoping you'll share with us a little bit, just what we can learn about our genetic health to help us understand some risk factors for conditions that might be related to our microbiome. Yeah, definitely. This is also another sort of passion project of mine. Um, When we look at root medicine uh, and understanding uh, the individual health, genetic predisposition is one of those branches that we want to understand, looking at family lineage, um, also looking at, you know, different types of testing that's available out there. So when we're looking specifically at uh, genes, particular genes related to um, the microbiome and risk for dysbiosis, there's a particular gene called fucosyl transferase. It's called the FUT2 gene, and people can be secretors or non-secretors. So if someone is a non-secretor, what's interesting is they don't secrete certain types of sugars or carbohydrates that are essentially stuck onto the epithelial of our uh, gastrointestinal health, as well as it it has to do with blood typing and other functions there. But when we think about how the microbiome is being established, a lot of times they have to bind to the cell in order to create a community and in order to replicate and sort of um, create an environment that is hospitable for them to grow. So if this sugar Modi uh, isn't there, then they can't bind. And so we see that people who are non-secretors, they have differences in the establishment patterns with bifidobacteria when they're young. And we also see that there's a reduction in lactobacillus, bifidobacteria, bacteroides. These are some of the main genres that we see in the gut. And because of that lack of Uh, beneficial bacteria or those disruptions that we see that can increase likelihood for infection. So we've seen connection with this non-secretor status and risk for infections of UTIs, candida, uh, even ulcers. And it's pretty common in the population. So about 20% of the population is considered a non-secretor. And when I look at the genetics, I always you know, question, what is the evolutionary advantage of this? Why do we have this? Why did you know, subpopulations, you know, evolve to not have this secretor status. And when you look back at the history, it's interesting. And even now we do see that being a non-secretor can also be protective from certain infections. So it can reduce the likelihood of um, 
say Norwalk, certain strains of Norwalk or rotavirus. And so that's where the sort of the evolutionary advantage came from, but it came at a cost. And so when I look at this and I see this in patients, I know I'm going to be working a little bit harder to ensure that we're getting those lactobacillus and those, you know, good strains. We're establishing those. Maybe I'm using, um, you can actually dose fucosyl. So there's companies that have fucosyl, which is the sugar that we're missing. And so you can dose that as a prebiotic and that will help to sort of compensate for those particular lack of production. And then in my breastfeeding uh, population, so we know that this, these non-secretors, it also alters the type of breast milk. So the sugars, uh, fucosylated HMOs, um, and that can affect baby as well, right? The establishment of the microbiome. So I'll give probiotics to mom and baby and make sure that there's a lot of prebiotics and um, all the other healthy stuff that we're working on in mom to, to hopefully support this as well. So that, that's one area that I'll look at. There, I mean, there's so many other genes that is related to immunity, things like vitamin D, vitamin A, you know, you're at risk for celiac disease, metabolic conditions, all of these can predetermine other factors that, as we sort of talked about today, can impact the gut microbiome or impact fertility. So I'll kind of use it as a snapshot to kind of understand what the predispositions are and then look at sort of what are the environmental factors which are sort of triggering those genes and, and impacting how those genes are getting expressed to impact someone's health. Ooh, this is so good. So you're actually doing some testing to, let's say, understand if someone is a secretor or a non-secretor. Yeah. And there's actually fertility panels out there now, lifestyle and diet fertility genetic panels that you can look at these factors that um, are related to processes for fertility and fertility outcomes. Beautiful. Dr. Murphy, I wanted to thank you so much for sharing all of these incredible insights. It's clear that this is an area of interest to you and we'll look to you to keep learning. I know you have your eyes on the research, so I know you'll keep us posted about what type of literature is paving the way for how we think about the microbiome in the future. So I wanted to thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And thanks for geeking out with me and listening to this topic that's near and dear. Um, and I hope this helps, you know, your community and people listening. Absolutely. Well, thank you listeners for joining us and hearing all about the microbiome. Big thanks to our show's producer, Paola Martini. We just always love chatting with everyone. We'll see you next time. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast, where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.